Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to the New Books Network channel, New Books in Dance. I'm your host, Sitara Thabani. Join me as I speak with Mark Hertzman, author of Making Samba, A New History of Race and Music in Brazil, which was awarded honorable mention by the Latin American Studies Association. Making Samba revisits the history of Brazil's quintessential music and dance genre to explore the links between popular music, law, racial democracy, and nation formation. So doing, it highlights the complex social, cultural, and political processes that lie at the heart of Making Samba. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Hertzman, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Illinois. Dr. Hertzman is also the author of the new book, Making Samba, A New History of Race and Music in Brazil, published by Duke University. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be talking to you. I really would like to begin by congratulating you on your book. It was a fantastic read, um, and and it feels like there's so much material to cover. I'm curious, how did you come to this project in the first place? Uh, Well, thank you so much. Um, uh, So the path to the project... yeah, it's a little bit of a long one, but um, that starts first in Chile, where I was. Um, I, I did a undergraduate. I did a study abroad in Chile, and traveled to Brazil from there, and really fell in love, and went to Carnival, and um, and decided I really had to come back and learn Portuguese, and and um, and you know had an interest in the music there. Um, once I got to grad school, though, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. Um, and when I finally decided that Brazil was the path, the intellectual impetus really was to try and I was really interested in the um, uh, criminal justice, for, for lack of a better term, but criminal justice system and thinking about policing and repression and race. Um, and so from there, I started finding these stories of, of samba musicians, um, you know, who had apparently been uh, repressed and a very familiar story. And that, that was really sort of the entry point for me. Mm-hmm. And and so the the history of samba that you develop in this book really um, shows how much samba coincides with these massive political changes and historical transformations in Brazil. Could you tell us a little bit more about this history um, and especially the relationship that we see between race, nation, and samba? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Samba, you know, sort of became a, a unified musical genre during the, you know, the first decades of the 20th century, really the 20s and 30s is when it came together. And um, this was a period of enormous change in Brazil, which um, slavery was abolished in 1888, uh, the last country in the Western Hemisphere to do that. Uh, the Brazil, unlike other uh, Latin American nations, after it became independent and preserved a monarchy until 1889, the year after abolition, and um, and so it became a republic sort of very late comparatively. Uh, and so you have all of these changes becoming a post-abolition society, becoming a republic um, during the early 20th century. And as all that's going on, um, eventually you have this guy, Getulio Vargas, who becomes president in 1930, and he will be in 
in control of the country for the next 15 years. And then even beyond that, um, he'll step down and then come back. Um, so there is an enormous amount of things going on, um, uh, not to mention different economic policies and um, cultural approaches. Um, so Samba, as Samba took shape, um, there was, yeah, absolutely. And so many going on around, around uh, the country. Okay. Um, and this idea of it taking place in, in a specifically post-abolition context is also really interesting because you speak a lot about uh, developing intellectual property rights as well as part of the story, not just in terms of helping to define what Samba is or to fix Samba in a way, but in, in part of this larger post-slavery history in which, um, you know, obviously Afro-Brazilians... Um, were, were, as you say, seen more as fonts of wealth rather than owners of wealth. Um, how does that then carry forward into this development of Samba as, as intellectual property? Yeah, so thank you. That, you know, and that became to me really one of the most fascinating questions um, that I had to grapple with. Um, how does a post-slave, you know, sort of what you said, but how does a post-slave society um, not only assign uh, wealth and property uh, rights to people who formerly were um, property, um, but also how do they do that with something like music, which is such a you know abstract and ethereal thing to 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 put a property regime around. Um, uh, so that you know just became a fascinating question for me, and how that actually happened. You know, I mean, it's a very uh, you know, there's a, a, a number of steps and sort of complex twists and, and turns. But I think one of the main points that I try and make in the book um, is that you do have a familiar story of theft, right? Of white theft of black music. And this is something that's familiar across the Americas. I was talking about it. We were talking about Elvis just the other day in my black music course um, and sort of ideas about, about white musicians, you know, taking black musicians work. And, and of course, that is a very important part of the story. But one of the things that I really found fascinating, too, is the plight of um, black musicians who successfully did um, uh, put, um, make claims to make property claims or successfully did get to own music um, and make money from it. And then what happened to them uh, is very, I think, a very sort of under undertold story, not only in Brazil but elsewhere. Um, and it doesn't always fit up um, so easily with the more familiar stories and very important stories of white theft and just very open closed. This is, you know, um, th th what's going on with with folks who actually do make it to a certain extent can be just as tragic, but also much more complex sometimes. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about those stories? And, and I, uh, from reading the book, there's a sense of, of, you know, kind of debates or frictions happening amongst musicians themselves in terms of how uh, this, this uh, right to music as property becomes codified. Sure. So, you know, the book begins with, um, it's framed with... Uh, um, one of the most iconic songs, the most contested songs in Brazilian history, which just had its 100th year anniversary last year, Pelo Telefone on the telephone. Um, and Pelo Telefone is, you know, it, it's important for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is uh, that it is understood as being the first samba. Um, which, as other people have told before me, but as I recount in the book, is not actually true. Other songs were called samba before that, and actually the musical, um, you know, the, the music itself, it wasn't really samba as we know it today. Um, nonetheless, it made the word samba very popular um, and sort of helped launch 
Samba later into sort of the national consciousness. Um, but in terms of intellectual property, it's a really, uh, yeah, it really sort of gets to the heart of your question and the heart of, you know, what we're talking about right now. So, uh, one musician, Donga, um, uh, uh, Afro Brazilian musician, he went to the national library, which is where you, um, would go at the time to say, I, you know, this is a song that I own and I want to register it here and I'm the author. Um, he went with, uh, a, well, he got the signature of a white patron, a, a journalist, um, to say that he had written the lyrics and that Donga was the, was the musician. Um, and so, Telephony becomes a smashing success. It's like the the, the hit of Carnival that year. Um, and pretty soon, a number of people, most of whom um, were also black like Donga, said, hey, wait a minute, we actually have this um, song at sort of this, you know, standing jam session that we use, that we have that Donga was sometimes a part of. Um, lots of people created this music. It wasn't just Donga. And, um, and that, you know, to, to Donga's dying day and actually well beyond even to today, um, this is sort of a, a heated and contested issue. Um, and, you know, I, I was lucky enough to talk to uh, Donga's daughter. Um, you know, this is a, this was about 10 years ago when I was doing the research. Um, and, uh, yeah, and she felt very, you know, you could see, you could tell and from talking to her just over her life, how much anger had been hurled at her and then how much anger she sort of in turn felt, um, due to the way people had talked about her father and, and, and whether he had stolen the song or not. Okay. It sounds like a fascinating history. Another thread that you really develop in your book is, is drawing attention to how complex the social spectrum is on which these Afro-Brazilian musicians engaged uh, in terms of their cla- uh, their race identities, but also in terms of their class identities. And you really seem to challenge this idea of all Afro musicians being, you know, at the very bottom of, of the class hierarchy and, and draw attention to what you call the missing middle. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you. Yeah, that, you know, is another, and I'll say that this was sort of one of the, some of the, this was another one of the pieces, um, that there are a lot of pieces that you have that are surprising when you go into research. And, and I think this is one that I hadn't thought through fully. Um, but in doing the research, you know, you realize you have these familiar stories again of, of, of musicians being repressed and, and, and black musicians having their music stolen. Um, and you have these familiar stories. Um, and then when you get into the archives and, and interview people and, and, and go into the sort of deeper history, you see such a multiplicity of, of experiences. And so you have, um, you know, you have individuals, uh, black musicians who came from absolute, you know, destitute, um, poverty. You have others who, um, came from much different circumstances. Um, and then, you know, and you see one of the things that I think was one of the trickiest parts of writing this book was, um, there's a musician, Pichinguinha, who, um, who's one of the great musicians of all time in, in Brazil and just really a, a musical virtuoso really. Um, and at different points in his career, he sort of accepted different labels of being a poor black musician or a samba musician um, and other times clearly rejected them. And so not only do you have, um, uh, you know, this sort of multiplicity of voices, but you also have within the single life of an individual, of a given musician, um, different times what that, they're presenting themselves in different ways for whatever reason. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I can, the missing middle part, I guess, is a different piece. I'm sorry if I, I'm not sure if I totally answered the, the original question, but that, but that is one piece what I just talked about that is, you know, that I think is really relevant. 
and and the other yeah pieces? sure so okay so the missing middle you know the the idea behind that is it's sort of twofold so um there are uh um, part of it has to do with, with sort of the location that, um, when scholars of Brazil, and especially when I was writing the book, you know, have talked about sort of black mobilizations, um, in the early 20th century and in the post-abolition era, Salvador in the North and Sao Paulo in the South were really kind of the main points of comparison. And, and, and these places were sort of juxtaposed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that was due in part in Sao Paulo, you had this very, vibrant um black political movement and also um black press so you have you know sort of similar to chicago and lots of other places in the u.s but you have black journalists writing black papers for black people to read in salvador mm-hmm. um and in, in salvador uh uh you have sort of a less a, a less segregated space and um but you also have um really rich sort of um religious um religious groups and um and just a very different sort of sense of how black identity and mobilization took place and also real interesting connections to africa not just historical but elite um blacks in salvador going back and forth between um west you know northwest africa um nigeria and 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 salvador and, and creating some really interesting things Rio in this, it's interesting because in Brazilian literature, Rio de Janeiro is like everybody writes about Rio. But in terms of black mobilization identity during this period, um, there w- there hadn't been quite as much on that particular topic. And so in a way, you know, I think about people are like, well, what is the, what is the political mobilization during this time? It's not the black journalists of um, – of Sao Paulo, and it's not these elites who are going to Africa in in, in Sao Paulo, in Salvador. And so, what is it in Rio? And I think part of the answer is musicians, um, and also the web of ties they had with politicians and police sometimes, and journalists. Um, the other part of the middle, so and that's just geographically, Rio is in the middle between Sao Paulo and Salvador. Mm-hmm. The other part of the middle is that um, uh, has to do with a little bit of what I was already talking about in terms of. Um, there's, you know, there's always sort of this iconic idea of the poor black musician and that um, there are a lot of the musicians that I talk about um, were sort of like clinging to the very bottom of, of an emerging middle class or um, or maybe more comfortably in it, um, but not, they weren't all either, you know, they, they weren't all poor. And so interesting to think about mm-hmm. them as um as folks with some economic means and and then some also important social capital and and political and cultural and economic connections mm-hmm. and it's interesting that you uh you know point out that uh, um in many ways there's there's a much greater presence of africa in in salvador uh compared to say in rio but then what of the relationship between people in salvador and rio mm, yeah great question um and i'll say that you know i think also um i you know you always sort of it's interesting the life you know your book takes after after it's published and you can't you know and you can't change it i do think that i'm you know and i i think that maybe there is um uh i think that there that i that i may have um phrased things a little bit um a little bit more strongly than than i might now in terms of um the relationship between africa and, and rio i mean i i do think still pretty strongly that there were not people going back and forth between Rio and, 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 and Nigeria, like they were in Salvador. But I do think that, um, 
um, you know, that the presence of Africa in one sense or another absolutely, you know, was, was in Rio. Um, so, but, you know, to your question then about the relationship between people in Salvador and, and Rio, this is a really fascinating topic. And I, um, I think I, I touched on it a little bit in the book. There's a Brazilian author, Maria Clementina Pereira Cunha, um, who has written really excellent stuff about this, uh, to be, you know, to put it sort of, to summarize it, um, there, there's a real genesis in Rio um, eventually about who who really created samba, and um, some of this has to do with what part of the city you're from. Are you from the Mojo, the hill, um, you know, which are sort of um, these shanty towns, or are you from the actual, you know, are you from downtown? Um, are you from the neighborhood that that is really credited with creating this one particular rhythm? Um, but it also has to do with are you actually are your folks from Rio? Do you can you do you have ties here for a long time, or did you? come or did your parents come from Salvador um, as immigrants, you know, from the Northeast? Um, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the folks I talk about um, came from the Northeast or their family did. Um, and so then you have eventually, you know, the genealogy of Samba is something that is always contested and never answered. Um, but um, you have, you know, you have people saying that, well, actually Samba came from Salvador. That's where it's really from. And, you know, and it came to Rio and then it, and then it hit it big. Um, and you have some really, um, you do have some, eventually some very nasty fights, um, with people in lyrics and then also just personally that also intersect with the intellectual property, but between sort of, you know, folks who claim Salvadoran lineage and folks who are, you know, Carioca or, or from and of Rio, um, Um, Another question I wanted to ask you is you seem, uh, you identify two, uh, perhaps we can say mythologies or or two kind of um, constructs that you you seem to be wanting to push back against or at least complicate. And, And that is this idea of racial democracy and what you call the punishment paradigm. Could you speak a little bit about both both of those and and how you see kind of the samba musicians engaging with uh, both? Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so so racial democracy is um, it's really kind of a you know um, uh, it is indelibly tied to any sort of study of Brazil now. The idea you know you have this sense. Um, this understanding that Brazil at some point, many people have called it and maybe continue to call it a racial democracy. And that is, um, it stems from the idea that, well, in, in Brazil, slavery was a little bit different than it was elsewhere. Um, and there are very different variants of this narrative, but, um, you know, inevitably have something to do with um, slave women raising white um, master's sons and, uh, and then creating eventually, um, this mixed race place where, where you don't see race. Um, and again, there's lots of variants. This, you know, evolved more and more of the literature now is showing, you know, this evolved over a long period of time in the 19th century, at least, and, um, and, and into the 20th. And, you know, around, especially around the 50s, 60s, and 70s, social scientists really started to, do research blowing it apart and showing definitively quantitatively, you know, and also qualitatively that, um, no, there, there is a lot of racism here. Slavery had a big legacy and slavery is slavery. Um, and so, um, and so my book was not meant to, uh, it's interesting because I still, I just was reading a blurb about a book that's just about to come out, um, uh, that sort of frames the book as well. This is showing that racial democracy doesn't exist in Brazil. And I, it, it's amazing. It just shows how powerful the idea is. Um, you know, that idea I think has long, long since been disproven. Um, and yet 
it is still a powerful idea. And so what I really wanted to think about in my book is why, why is it so powerful? How has it, how does it continue to endure after, you know, volumes and volumes and volumes um, and, you know, personal experiences that just should, of course, this is not, you know, this doesn't exist here. Um, so, okay. So there's, so, and there's a relationship then between that and the other, the, the punishment paradigm, but maybe I'll just, you know, keep going for a little bit with the racial democracy. I mean, I think ultimately one of the, um, okay, great. So what, you know, I think ultimately one of the things that I found and argued, and I think, you know, this is something that I think maybe was harder for some people to, to accept or to, you know, to embrace. Um, but was the idea that I'm um, part of the reason that it, um, has endured is that it is not just, you know, it hasn't just been embraced and propagated by white people. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't the first person to say that, but I really was when I was writing it and, you know, as it's coming out, um, I think really was part of, you know, a first wave of people to really be thinking about this systematically and that the idea of racial democracy was something that, um, you know, people, black people, um, people who identified in different ways, um, also, uh, embraced and, um, and then tried to make their own, you know, because I, I think so the sort of the idea, um, is that if you really want to understand how this thing is so powerful, the end of the day, it doesn't really work to say, um, well, just because white people have sort of fooled black people or this is, you know, or it's just imposed just from the top. Um, no, that this is actually a, a narrative that has been meaningful and important um, for many, many years um, that a lot of different people have tried to claim as their own. Um, so, so that, so that's sort of, you know, what I was trying to do with, you know, in, in a nutshell, not explain that racial democracy doesn't exist, but rather ask how and why um, it continues to be a powerful and meaningful narrative that that does help propagate and propagate, you know, racism and inequality and also um, uh, make both those things harder to fight against. And so I guess if I can maybe jump in with a follow up question, and then we can turn to the punishment paradigm. Um, you you mention in in your book you talk about basically in you're you're spanning a century plus history of of samba and and various musicians in in you know this genre and you say that you know the later samba musicians uh come to embrace identities that may have really surprised their their uh kind of predecessors um could you tell us more about those shifts and and how these identities come to be embraced or not and 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 why yeah sure and and in fact you know i think i i would even try to take it a step further that say and there's you know a trio in particular a couple who i've already talked about who who you know, I try to show kind of embraced identities at the end of their life that would have made their former selves kind of blanch. Yeah. So, you know, not even just in terms of different eras, but, you know, what and different eras of musicians, but different individuals. And, and so absolutely. So, so, you know, and I can keep going with sort of with Donga and Pichinguinha. They're, they're part of um, this trio also with Joao de Bayana, um, uh, who became uh, at the end of their lives, sort of in the sixties and, um, uh, really kind of iconic, understood as these iconic national treasures um, and treated by many people then as a symbol of racial democracy. That, look, these guys, you know, 
it came from a time and part of the narrative that's really tricky about racial diversity that you know it does it sometimes even though it says well slavery wasn't as bad it does tend to then say well actually you know yeah of course there was racism before but now we've moved past it and so and these guys then are can be held up as sort of um examples of that that well you know they came from a time when there was more racism at the beginning of the 20th century but um uh, look at us now, look at them now, they're national treasures, um, and they're examples of, of the progress of our nation and our, you know, and our egalitarianism. Um, so, uh, so in terms of like the different, you know, selves and, and sort of different identities, like Donga is a great example because, so Donga is this guy who in the 19 teens claims ownership over this song, Pella Telephony, and is just like raked across the coals for it. And, you know, and, and it, you know, and people call him, you know, all kinds of things for, um, but it all boils down to that he's looking out for his own interests and is, in, and wants to make money and, um, uh, and doesn't care about a larger, you know, a larger collective, a larger black collective or a larger national collective. Um, and at the end of his life, you know, he and the other two are really sort of held up as, um, the, you know the the rhetoric is just again so familiar, but 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 so amazing in when you trace the 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 trajectory of their of their lives and what was said about them and what they said about themselves. All of a sudden, the '60s, you know, and then into the '70s, these guys are like they never cared about money. They just played music because they were you know natural and instinctual um, or instinctive, and um, you know, and they just did it for the love and they never cared about money. And now money has entered music and it has destroyed music. And we long for the days of these pure, authentic black musicians who played despite racism, you know, but who played music just because they loved it. And these guys, you know, I think probably as many people would do would say, you know, if this is the narrative that's being surround, put around them to glorify them, um, they're not necessarily so quick to, <laughs> to, to, uh, you know, to argue against it, even though, um, the challenges of making money as a black man, as in a black musician, when they were younger were intense and they struggled mightily to do so. Um, uh, so, um, yeah. And then again, you know, and it's inter- another thing I think that was really interesting that comes up, you know, in this project, but I guess a lot of times in music is, um, and I guess it's what probably, you know, Roy Jones would have called the changing same, um, in a different way, but there's, you know, there's these narratives about music that, that just, again, they're cyclical, but there's always an era before when music, when money didn't matter. And, you know, now money matters. Um, when the reality is that <laughs> money always mattered, probably <laughs> these guys, that's how they're trying to make a living. Right, right. Um, and then you had mentioned, uh, I guess, in, in in a slightly different way, but still this idea of there always being this ideal moment, kind of the golden age of samba. I thought it was really interesting where you point out kind of this golden age in, in the 20s and 30s, is it? Um, actually not being that great for, for a lot of Black musicians. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is interesting. This could be a good transition to the, the, the punishment paradigm. Um, um yeah. So, you know, the, the understood, the way people usually periodize, <clears throat> excuse me, the golden age is like usually 1929, um, to 1945. Um, and, uh, so, um, so it's the time when like, you know, this guy's Julio Vargas is, you know, that's basically his time and power. Um, it's when carnival and music get sort of linked, 
um, officially to national identity in a way that they probably hadn't been with this, you know, the government is starting to sponsor and take control of carnival and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so, so there's a lot of, you know, it's a sort of a heady time. There's a lot going on, um, economically, um, there, there's just a lot happening. Um, and then there are winners and losers as there always are, but it's pretty distinct, I think, who the winners and losers are during this time. So you do have musicians, you do have some black musicians who are, who are succeeding. Um, and at the same time, you have others who are not and who are sort of forced into or willingly or unwillingly go into relationships with white musicians or white labels that, that aren't very good for them, excuse me. Um, and, um, and so, um, you know, then enter the question of, of, police and policing music and repression of musicians and um and what i you know have come to call the punishment paradigm so the punish paradigm the punishment paradigm um briefly is is the idea that before samba became a symbol of national identity it was repressed by the police and you know you can kind of hopefully see how this feeds into um racial, the idea of racial democracy, that there's a teleological progression that, you know, things got better over time. Um, we used to, we used to repress musicians, but now, you know, black musicians, but now we don't. So, you know, one of the original goals of this book was to go down to Rio and to go into the police archives and find the experiences of these musicians who had been repressed and to tell their story. Like, that's really where I, um, that's what one of the main starting points was. And I got to Rio and I was looking looking, looking, and I could not find examples of this in the police archive. And it got so I was there so long and looking for so looking so hard, you know, that I um, and coming up with nothing that at a certain point, I thought I didn't have a project. Eventually, taking a step back, you know, that vast silence itself became really interesting. And so eventually what I and eventually sort of what I found was um, uh, there were, you know, there were musicians who suffered horribly at the hands of the police. Um, in almost every case, it had very little to do with the fact that they were musicians. Um, and in some cases, these became stories. There were all kinds of stories that sort of got spun out of this. And, and the idea of Samba being repressed by, by the police um, remains a very important narrative um, for expressing and drawing attention to very real uh, violence and, and racial injustice. Um, um, but when you look then at sort of what happened to individual musicians and how this links up with Samba's golden age, um, what I found was in some ways there seems to be, so you do have musicians who are getting, who are getting caught up in the, with the police. Um, there's one man, Ismael Silva, who's a really kind of a, a, another a really tragic figure. I think it's in, in a lot of ways. He, was one of the most responsible for creating, you know, the rhythmic paradigm that, that became Samba. Um, and also just, a, you know, a real musical genius. There's been a lot written sort of about, or a lot said about him, you know, sort of being in this unfair relationship with the white musician, um, Francisco Alves and, and selling him his stuff or, or you know, um, uh, having it stolen by him. But what I found that was really, you know, just, it, it was awful to find these criminal cases um, where he was brought in on vagrancy charges or on, um, you know, playing illegal numbers games, that kind of thing, things that had nothing to do with music. Um, and he had, I mean, he had, he had some very serious health issues. Um, his, the police sort of repression against him, his, his experience at the hands of the police that was the most brutal was happening almost right when he was developing um, 
and then getting recognized for and, and, and sending into sort of the ether this amazing musical paradigm that became a symbol not only of the nation, but of racial democracy and progress. So in some ways, for some musicians, things got harder just as the larger scene is, oh, this is great. We're accepting our, you know, our black musical heritage and, um, and we're a wonderful nation. And meanwhile, people like Ismael Silver are actually really suffering. Um, and so, so ultimately what, you know, I, you know, what I, and the punishment paradigm and sort of struggling with that, formulating that idea and then challenging it was undoubtedly like the most difficult for a number of reasons, you know, um, uh, intellectually, but also I think sort of emotionally to, to sort of wrestle with, um, ultimately what I kind of, you know, what I, what seems clear to me now is that, um, <clears throat> the paradigm itself, like any paradigm is, is, is a false one. It really hides, um, a lot of what happened it, for the one, you know, it suggests a teleology that things got better and they didn't. Um, and for that reason, it also really hides sort of the, you know, the notion of just police kind of like harassing musicians, um, can be a very kind of like romantic, almost, you know, humorous kind of story. Um, the experience that these musicians had at the hands of the police was brutal. Um, and, it, and again, at the same time, it didn't really have to do with music. Um, right. No, no. I, I, I think that's, you know, just again, making the case for why it's so important to see something like Samba as embedded in this larger social and political history. I mean, the, the idea of, using anti-vagrancy laws as kind of the entry point to disciplining these musicians um, and whether it is or is not because they're solely musicians um, just shows you how complex this picture is. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and then there's another, there's a gendered aspect of it um, that like, that for me, I think really crystallizes that one of the most important reasons why for all the power that the, you know, that this narrative of the police repressing musicians holds, like why we also need to question it, interrogate it and challenge it. Um, uh, so there was, he was not actually a musician, but a carnival dancer um, who, uh, in the at the end of his life in the early 1990s, he did an interview with journalists, and they said, "Oh, you know, you disappeared. Um, you know, you disappeared at a certain point. Um, what happened to you? There were a couple of years there, like in the 1930s, when you were you were nowhere to be found." And he launches into this, like, you know, again, paradigmatic, absolutely familiar story. Ah, well, you know, I was at the Samba school and a fight broke out in the police. You know what they did to Samba musicians? They came in and falsely charged me with something. And they always did this. And they threw me in jail. And they sent me off to this island prison for a couple of years. And then I came back. But, you know, it's all about this story of Samba being repressed. And, um, and then it turns out that what in fact happened was he did go to jail um and but that was because he attacked his girlfriend with a knife um and almost killed her so it was a domestic dispute and it was you know for obvious reasons at the end of his life he didn't want to cop to that and so he has this narrative on hand that that basically you know in effect silences um you know this woman who no one has ever heard of um and not to mention the awful things that he did to her so in that you know that kind of dramatic example um the idea that the police repressed musicians is actually like you know it's a false one and and it hides this other in some ways more difficult and and you know more challenging history of a black man stabbing and you know attacking his black girlfriend um and then Bearing that in a history of um, of white on black, you know, police on musician racism. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of dovetails very nicely, um, if I can use that word right now, uh, with what I wanted to ask you next. And that is, um, of course, this question of gender, uh, both in terms of the kinds of masculinities that you uh, study being produced, but also um, kind of the, the female presence that you keep indicating is uh, nearly completely erased uh, in this history. Yeah, of yeah thank you. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of let me start at the end there that um uh another you know frustration um was as you go through the history of samba it is like a completely male dominated all the big names are are male um and then you also have this kind of paradox or irony that um so i can go back really quick just to peloton the original you know that sort of original song that we started with um those jam sessions were held in in houses of um, of you know the English translation is aunt um, a u n t um, aunt um, chias and 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 many of them were from Bahia and so there are these women who hosted um, uh, festivals parties uh, jam sessions that also sometimes included religious components um, and our knowledge of sort of their musical contributions to these uh, to these events is really unknown and I think there's a good chance that they actually influence the musical stylings in ways that we have very little access to because the recording industry was so thoroughly dominated by men. Um, um, so you have these traces and these indications and yet you have the written record and even much of the, you know, most of the oral record, not all of it, but most of the oral histories that have been passed down really emphasizing men. Um, and uh, so, um, so you have that on the one hand. Then you also have, you know, you have glimpses more as as performers of of women. You know, there's one story that I just love: um, uh, uh, stage performer um, uh, who she she's created this character in a, um, um, you know, in a in a in a basically like musical theater, um, and her the manager who's, who's this black entrepreneur, he's, he's going to replace her. And she writes this letter to the editor saying like, you know, you, how are you going to replace me? I created this character. You can't just pull anyone off the, um, off the street. And she has very colorful language, a very, very witty language about it. Um, and she makes this claim that, you know, performance, I can, I, I am, I'm, um, you know, I am owed ownership rights and, and, and remuneration for my performance, which is, you know, to this day, something that I think legal systems, um, across the world have done very little, you know, this is a very difficult topic, but how you, how you reward and recognize performance as, um, as original creation, right. Um, is, a you know, it's, it's much easier to think about, okay, this guy right, wrote the song. And so he gets this X amount and the performer gets X amount, but the performer as a creator, which we all, you know, there's so many great examples of someone taking someone else's song, you know, and, and turning it into something that is just remarkable. Um, so you have, and so you have glimpses of that at the, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, but it is, uh, there's, you know, in it, this was one of the frustrations of 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 the research of, of finding more examples of that are are hard, and so ultimately this is, I think, another kind of telling silence. Um, and there are so many things then that between what kind of ownership and property is is recognized, what kind of roles as musicians, um, you know, women are are sort of allowed to have. Um, it has to do with the written record, it has to do with the oral histories. There's so many ways that mu- that women have been silenced in um, in the history, and um, <clears throat> you know, and I, I think again in terms of like 
you know, what you wish you could do after the book. Um, I, it's something that I don't know exactly how I would do it, but I, but I do wish that I could have found a way to have women's voices and experiences be more present in it. Um, and at the same time, maybe the fact that they're not really is indicative of what a male dominated world this was. That brings to mind a, a, a question, and, and perhaps this might be um, a, a good place to wrap up, is to ask you about your reflections on samba today. You know, you mentioned kind of being drawn to carnival and, and you know, um, it's that time of year again where, you know, you, you it's, it's, there's these iconic images of the female samba dancers, the samba music, the liveliness, you know, um, in Carnival when it comes to, you know, football in the World Cup. Uh, your reflections on, on samba today in light of this entire history that you've studied? Mm, yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um uh, I, I'll start by saying one of the first things, uh, you know, I did interviews, most of them were with these older male samba musicians. And, you know, I was this, you know, white gringo, like young, young guy coming in. And, and, you know, and the first question they always asked me, they always turned the table on me and asked me like, well, what kind of samba are you actually studying? Um, and then introduced me to this universe of there are so, you know, there are so many forms of samba, right? And so when we think about samba today and we associate it with carnival and, and, and all those drums, um, it's so far removed in some ways from the, you know, from the recordings and the, and the, and the music that I, you know, that I, the musicians that I really studied, even though there is a line connecting all of them. And even though that music really did, you know, it's just in some ways a different, it's a very different trajectory. Um, and at the same time, it's like, um, you know, I really, I have the, deja vu all over again feeling so often um because like you said i mean you have the iconic sort of female um you know um dancer um and you have a lot of the same gender divisions um you have a lot of the same fights going on about property rights you have so much and and that's one of the things you know that i also start the book with was um the continuity between what happened with Pelotelefoni and then Gilberto Gil, who's not a samba musician, but sort of some of the same things that he suffered as a, you know, as a black man making money in the, in the public spot spotlight. Um, so um, I guess one more interesting thing though, that's happening with samba today is that I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of hip hop artists. There are a lot of people who are appropriating sort of that older recorded samba, you know, that I studied and that is becoming now people are really embracing that as part of their musical heritage, sort of independent from carnival and almost as a counterpoint, um, interestingly enough. Um, so, um, so, and when I, th and I guess when you think of sort of, when I think of contemporary Brazilian music, I don't think of samba as being, I, th I think of it now as being more of sort of a generic, um, um, word that's applied, you know, almost as a metonym to all things Brazilian from outside, all things musically Brazilian, right? Um, but in terms of like its musical sort of importance, you know, I, I definitely think that, um, you know, aside from Carnival, which again is a very particular kind of samba, there are, you know, I think for most people, samba represents in Brazil something that is, um, Part of their heritage and, and and something large and abstract, um, but the music they listen to for the most part, are, there's any number of kinds, you know, including hip hop, but so many more beyond that. It it reminds me um, a couple of years ago I saw a Brazilian hip hop performance um, at a festival in London, and you're just making me think about it in a different way. I really enjoyed it, um, and and it, it you know seems like a fascinating trend to to think through. Yeah, and it is. Yeah, and I do. I really do think there's um, there are some. It, it's, it gets exciting. I think. <clears throat> Excuse me again. It's exciting. Some of the um, 
some of the ways that new artists now are sort of engaging with that. Um, in, I guess, I mean, roughly the same way that there are US now hip hop artists who are really like seriously engaging with jazz in interesting ways. And I think that's starting to happen a little bit more in, in Brazil, you know, as a, as a rough parallel. Um, and that I think is really exciting and interesting. Um, in terms of the larger narratives and sort of the meanings, you know, I generally tend to think that they kind of, um, as samba is more of a generic thing, you know, I mean, I do think these stories get repeated over and over again. And, um, and, you know, but again, that's sort of the point, one of the points of the book is how history really can move in cycles, um, and, or in circle. (laughs) Right. Well, you're definitely opening the door to, to finding some, some amazing music. Well, thank you. That, and if, if nothing else, that was, it was one of the, um, you know, it was obviously one of the great joys of doing this book was getting exposed and spending so much time immersed in music. What a, what a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, uh, I guess to close, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, so it's, uh, um, the project I'm working on right now, um, is about, uh, it's actually about the death of one very important person in the history of Brazil, Zumbi dos Palmares. So uh, Zumbi was the last leader of this really remarkable, amazing, perhaps the largest or one of the largest runaway slave communities in definitely in Brazil and, and in the Americas that it stood for over a century. And um, um, Zumbi's death for a long time was told in one of two ways for a long time. It was told as a suicide that um, rather than, um, accepted life back in slavery he when he saw the battle was lost he threw himself off a cliff and 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 killed himself um over time it actually became clear that um that uh he in fact had been you know he'd been killed by by colonial troops who then you know uh tore apart his body posted his head in public to warn off further um uh you know further um revolts and runaways um and to me you know i i got onto the project because i read people who became very very passionate about proving or disproving that zumbi had killed himself and you know again the question i think one of the most interesting questions we can ask as historians is why and how and for me it was really why like why are people so invested in whether he killed himself or not um, and so the idea now is um, I'm really kind of immersed in a new field, which is colonial Brazil. I've been spending a lot of time in those documents, which has been fascinating and disorienting. Um, but the idea is to tell the um, um, or sort of trace the telling of the telling of Zumbi's death over about over like 300 years. Um, so from from when he died in 1695 to today um, and. Yeah, so it's a uh, it's interestingly, I thought it was going to be sort of a quick second project, but that is not. <laughs> I've realized that doesn't exist <laughs> at least in my sound so quick. no, <laughs> it's not. But but I'm I, you know very enjoyable, and and he has. I'll just say that um, especially when we get into the 20th century and the second half, Zumbi's presence in Carnival and among musicians is really fantastic and fascinating. And so I'm though this project is not in you know based in music. Um, uh, or in you know musical worlds, it, I w- it will definitely um, involve some of that, uh, um, and I'm really looking forward to that too. Well, again, I think that's just a testament to to how embedded these histories are. It sounds like a fantastic project. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I hope so. But yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. That uh, embedded is the is a great word for it. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I've been talking to Mark Hertzman, the author of Making Samba, A New History of Race and Music in Brazil. Be sure to check it out. Thank you. 
that brings us to the end of this episode of New Books in Dance. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again next time.